Hi, I'm Jason Switzer, the Executive Director of the Alberta Clean Technology Industry Alliance and one of your co-hosts here at Pipelines and Turbines. How can we make Canada the best place in the world for clean tech venture growth and scale-up? Both the U.S. and EU have made trillion-dollar commitments to build back better. Canada's latest budget makes some significant commitments around clean tech. And while there are lots of new multi-billion dollar funds that will flow out to support clean tech, should this budget be implemented, the reality is what we really need to mobilize are the many trillions of private capital. And we need to do this more effectively than competing jurisdictions like the US and EU, which are home to equally talented, equally well-educated, but in many respects better funded entrepreneurs than ours. Critically, as our keynote will reveal, you need fiscal and tax incentives to bring private capital to the table. And in my view, this is an area where Canada lags, sadly, quite far behind. Notably, the new budget makes a commitment to study fiscal and tax incentives to mobilize clean tech. But what does that actually mean? Well, our special guest today is Stuart Elgy, who leads Smart Prosperity. Smart Prosperity combines rigorous economic and legal analysis and is one of Canada's leading environmental think tanks. Stewart undertook a significant analytical work which fed into the budget and which delivered several specific outcomes. He's introduced in this podcast by Micah Altus, Executive Director of Canada Clean Tech Alliance, of which I'm a co-founder. And this was all part of the Canada Clean Tech Alliance Week on the Hill that ran virtually in April of 2021. So with that, let me step away. I'll turn this over to uh, Micah and would ask you to take this opportunity to enjoy a fantastic and very thoughtful presentation by one of Canada's most insightful policy shapers about how Canada can level up our attractiveness to global investors to support the deployment and growth of our clean tech sector. Welcome to the Alberta Clean Tech Podcast, where we discuss and explore clean technology with industry leaders. Brought to you by the Alberta Clean Technology Industry Alliance. Welcome, everyone. Bienvenue. My name is Maike Althaus. I'm the Executive Director of Canada Clean Tech Alliance. And I have here with me Professor Stuart Elgie, Chair of the Smart Prosperity Institute. And Stuart is a professor of law and economics at the University of Ottawa. Stuart was also a member of the economic strategy tables, assembling key industry and political leaders, as well as academics. And these tables were hosted, I believe, in 2018 and 19. And Stuart played a vital role and recommended a tax incentive to support and advance the clean tech sector. But before we start, I'd like to give you a little bit of context. So why is that topic relevant? Why are we talking about this? So first of all, the EU has, as you probably all know, passed a massive funding package of 750 billion euros in support of really any Green Deal initiatives that are taken in the member countries. So that comes on top. The U.S. administration, the new Biden administration, not so new anymore, is proposing a package of about 600 billion for the green economy, 2 trillion as a recovery package over the next decade. And within the EU, uh, Germany has just recently announced 
that the government might mobilize 30 billion euros in venture capital uh, for the development of so-called technologies of the future. It includes a deep tech fund. By that, they mean uh, technologies with uh, long development cycles. And so that means in Canada here, we really need to step up the game in order to stay competitive on a global level. And we probably need a mix of different policies. But Stuart will focus on tax incentives today. We'll probably also talk a little bit of, about other policies. And Canada Clean Alliance um, has dis discussed a lot with Stuart and, and his team over the last month to figure out what the best mechanisms are. But Canada Clean Tech Alliance, we're not the experts. And that's why we have Stuart here. And with that, um, I'll hand over to you, Stuart. And before I do that, again, I'd like to thank our generous sponsors um, that have made the program of this week possible. Um, and now, truly, over to you, Stuart. Thanks, Micah. I appreciate it. If you hear any barking or paper shredding in the background, that's not me. We have a new puppy, and I'm the guardian of it while the children are at school, so my apologies in advance. So, um, as Micah said, today I'm going to focus a little bit on what role tax incentives can play in driving clean tech investment and particularly how Canada can, can keep pace with the significant efforts Biden is about to make to ramp up clean tech tax incentives south of the border. I'm a professor of law and economics in my day job. I chair the Smart Prosperity Institute, which is Canada's largest environment economy think tank and research network based at University of Ottawa. But we've got a network of 100 professors across Canada and around the world and uh, about 50 partners from business and government that work together to figure out how do you build policies to drive clean growth. So given that you're on this call, you probably don't need to hear this first slide, which is that the world is moving to a net zero, clean, resource efficient economy. Um, that's not Greenpeace saying that, that's uh, environmental radicals like the World Economic Forum, McKinsey and major banks. Uh, we can debate the pace of change, but the direction is really unarguable right now. And that's not only important for the climate, it's a huge economic opportunity. And it's an opportunity for all parts of Canada's economy, not just wind and solar, but resources, manufacturing, agriculture. It's really important to think about this as a Canada-wide opportunity. And clean tech isn't a sector, it feeds into all of those clean growth sector platforms. The key to driving this clean growth and capturing opportunity is clean innovation, more important than ever before. Um, if we want to remain a high wage economy and compete in a world that is moving to better environmental performance, we're going to have to be better than our competitors at lowering our environmental footprint at lower cost. And you see this uh, solar and electric vehicle sales are a great example of how you hit this tipping point. And as costs come down and markets grow, soon these clean technologies that seem small and fringe start to displace the incumbent technologies. Uh, solar were there for the most part. It's cost competitive with, uh, wind, with, with uh, coal and gas power in most parts of the world. Um, EVs, not quite. We're probably a couple of years away. And when we look back on this in 10 or 20 years, there will be a whole host of technologies across manufacturing, industry, agriculture, transportation, and buildings, that we will have charts like this, showing these clean technologies have displaced incumbent technologies. So this is really about what can we do from Canada's perspective to make sure that we're punching above our weight 
not just in buying those technologies, but in making them. Michael referred briefly to the economic strategy tables. Those were set up by the Liberals a couple of years ago. They had a, groups of CEOs on each one. I was, uh, I think, the only academic stuck onto them. And the table produced um, a package of recommendations that found that innovation was the key to Canadian competitiveness in a changing global economy. And in particular, it had to be that we recommended a mix of measures, the first of which was smart regulation. That'll be a separate webinar. But the second one was tax incentives. Um, and the, the key part, and I want to emphasize this, even though we're talking about tax incentives today, you actually need all of these levers working together. And just to give you one tangible example of that, I've stuck in a little chart on the bottom right. And this is the US production tax credit for wind energy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I want to show you is this. And the point is how regulations and taxes interact. So the US used to authorize this tax credit on a one or two year basis. And you see back in 98, 99, 2000, that with a one to two year runway, relatively small investments. In 2005, someone said, hey, if we, if we authorize this for a seven to eight year period, it will actually give more certainty and predictability to investors. And what you saw was a massive ramp up in investment. Other than the economic downturn in 2010, you see a significant increase. And so it was the combination of tax incentives plus long-term policy certainty that actually worked together to really send the signal. So we're gonna talk about tax incentives today, but I really wanna emphasize that they have to be part of an integrated mix of policies pulling in the same direction. Okay, the next two slides are way more information than you should ever put on a PowerPoint slide. I put them on just to say innovation is complex. And academics criticize this for being way too simplified because it actually looks like an exploding asteroid when you really look at innovation systems. But the point is that there's a bunch of different important factors. One is as innovation moves from left to right and moves from research, whether it be private or public labs, through development, demonstration, deployment, scale up and diffusion, which is really where you need to get to. That's where you're generating jobs and wealth and people are actually using this stuff. It has to go through all those stages. And at each of those stages, there are different barriers or impediments where government must play a critical role in helping innovation. And that has been true of every innovation for the last century. Clean tech faces additional barriers though that most other technologies don't. And I think it's really important to understand that. So there's the classic failure is what's called knowledge spillovers. When you invent a new invention, you don't get to ultimately keep all the profits when, when it gets um, fully commercialized. So we have investment in universities, my job, National Research Council labs. There's an investment in research. The big difference for clean tech is this. The thing we're innovating around doesn't have a market price. So if I walk into a bank or an investment firm with a great new idea for a smartphone, they're gonna see dollar signs. People will actually pay for that invention. I walk in with a great new idea to reduce pollution, dollar signs are not going off because there's no market for pollution reduction. It's a classic market failure and you actually need government policies to step in and create the market demand for clean tech in a way that we don't for smartphones, agricultural products, manufactured goods, most other kinds of innovation, um, because there is no market for pollution reduction. It's a market failure. It's the poster child for a failure. So there's a bunch of other market failures that have to be addressed. But my point is this, whether you're you know, kind of a, a left wing, right wing on the political scale and believe in government intervention, 
there is a critical need for government policies to address market failures to shore up market demand for clean technology. And we're starting to see more and more of those, not just in Canada, but around the world. So let me flip to the next slide, which is an even more busy slide. But the point being this, that in order to move technologies from research, development, demonstration, and diffusion, there are a mix of different public policies that need to be calibrated to the barrier at each stage. So obviously, if you're looking at R&D, you're looking at things like research funding, shred tax credits. As you move up to demonstration and scale, you need things like public investment, places like SDTC that help fund companies to do demonstration projects. Uh, as things get commercialized, you're looking at later stage capital, procurement. Um, and then the big point, this is where we're gonna focus on today, is actually pulling those technologies into the market needs a mix of smart public policies, as we talked about before, that actually create the demand for the product. Most clean tech is driven by a regulatory requirement requiring pollution reduction or by government that's the largest buyer in society doing procurement. That's the big demand for most clean technology. It's the core driver. Um, tax incentives have to be part of that mix. And we'll talk about it in a second, but the big thing we talked about on the economic strategy table was this from a business perspective. Most of the other kinds of regulations that drive demand for clean tech, whether it's a carbon price, um, an ambitious regulation like a clean fuel standard, a methane standard, coal phase out, all of those drive demand for clean tech, but all of them raise the cost for business. And if you raise it too much, that becomes a competitiveness problem. What tax incentives can do is work in the opposite direction. They can actually create demand for clean technology, but lower the cost of buying that technology. You actually get money back from government. So if you think about it in tangible terms, a carbon tax, let's say of $40 a ton, you know, increases cost to business. A tax incentive for that very same low carbon technology doubles the incentive, but gives some of that money back to companies. So it strengthens the incentive for innovation, but lowers the cost and improves competitiveness. So having those two working together is really important. Um, we can talk about other, uh, other policy types later on if folks wanna get into them. So I told Mike we'd focus on the tech ones today, particularly with the budget coming up, talking about uh, tax incentives is particularly timely. So I'm gonna talk about um, three or four clean technology tax options that are being discussed actively in Canada at the moment. Um, and that's not a state secret. You can read Adam Radwanski's columns in the Globe and Mail and, and find out that these are all ones that are actively being discussed right now. Um, I'm gonna start at the bottom because the end goal of all of these policies is to help clean technologies move through to deployment and diffusion and adoption. And the places where we need help most or we need tax incentives most are those right to stages of growth. So the, the scale up one, which is these companies that are going through what's called the second valley of death. Uh, the first one being as you kind of move out of your R&D phase into your demonstration projects um, and you haven't quite made it to VCs yet, have a hard time financing. We're doing better at that stage. We've got a ways to go, but places like SDTC have really helped. It's that next stage as you graduate from SDTC, you've proven you, yourself through a demonstration plant. Now you need to commercialize and scale up and you need bigger money and you need patient money. That's really hard to fund. It doesn't usually fit the VC model. You haven't yet made it to banks or major investors. 
And you actually need governments all around the world to be co-investors in this scale up. So tax incentives can play a really important role and the US is already about to move big on doing that. The next stage is mature businesses, mature technologies. And there the goal is not just, is to take these market ready technologies and scale them out. So solar and wind power are moving into this last category now. They're actually ready for scale out and large scale diffusion. And that matters not just from an economic perspective, because that's where you actually get the wealth and jobs and profits, but also from a GHG reduction perspective. Because if Canada's going to meet its ambitious Paris targets, let alone a 2050 net zero target, we've got to be driving down emissions. So we've got to pull some of these promising clean tech companies, and Canada has lots of them. We've got to help them grow and stay in Canada. We've got to get out of the classic Canadian trap we've had to date where we're doing really well at R&D, we're doing better at better at growing small firms, but we lose a lot of them as they reach maturity and become profitable. They, they move elsewhere because their investors and their markets are elsewhere. So if we wanna actually keep the production and jobs here, we've gotta uh, convince those companies to stay and grow here and convince other companies to come to Canada. So let's talk about how tax incentives can target those right two stages. What types of tax incentives? So this graph here looks at really four main types of incentives. And I'm gonna talk about each of them in a sec because each of them is in play right now. The corporate income tax cut, which was the Liberals um, flagship commitment in its 2019 election platform. That was its big um, clean tech tax commitment in 2019. They were gonna cut the corporate tax rate in half for zero emission manufacturers. Um, I'm gonna say a little bit, a bit about accelerated capital cost allowance, but we already have 100% accelerated capital cost allowance as a result of the um, stimulus budget two years ago. So there isn't much room for growth there. I'm gonna talk particularly though about the bottom two, which is um, uh, investment tax credits and production tax credits. Those are the two, the two main tax instruments the US uses. Um, we really don't use them yet in Canada. And if we wanna keep pace with the US for investment and growth, we have to think about um, keeping pace with what they do. So um, if you can, in terms of thinking about what these different incentives do, the accelerated capital cost allowance and the investment tax credit apply to capital investment. And that may seem intuitive from the name, but it's important to remember that. The incentive they create is to invest in capital. The production tax credit is based on your production. So it's based on um, kilowatts of energy generated, tons of CO2 sequestered through CCS. So it's actually based on performance. Whereas a corporate income tax rate is simply based on the overall production of a firm. It's not targeted particularly to your capital investment or to your production. You're simply investing in the firms to have them grow here in Canada. So each of them does something slightly different, but they're all getting at clean tech incentives. So let's, let's dig down into the three ones that are mainly in play here. And I'm happy to talk about a range of other options because there's many more things we could be doing. But because these are the biggies in the US, they're the ones that are probably of, of greatest concern. So investment tax credits, um, as I said, it's a rebate on capital investment like accelerated capital cost allowance. US budget 2021 increases investment tax credits to 30% for most clean energy and storage technologies. So you actually get 30% of your capital investment back. The other big thing it does is it makes those 
credits refundable. So you don't have to be a profitable firm to, to use them. You can be a pre-profit firm, which most clean tech companies are, frankly, I don't, probably given the audience, I don't need to tell you guys that. Um, so the refundable part is really important for clean, growing clean tech firms. Um, what kind of money are we talking? So before this budget, uh, in the last couple of years, the US cost was about 2.7 billion a year for these incentives. Let's guess that'll roughly double as the ITC rate goes up. Most of the rates were kind of in the 10 to 20% range before this budget. So they're going up to 30 and they're becoming refundable. So that's probably gonna increase to at least $5 billion a year. Or if you divide by 10 for Canada, let's say $500 million a year. So significant stimulus support for uh, low carbon technologies. And just as a kind of ballpark to give people a sense, since you probably have some familiarity with the capital cost allowance, this 30% ITC puts about five to six times more money in a company's pocket than 100% accelerated capital cost allowance, depending on the interest rate and other factors, but ballpark five to six times bigger incentive. So it's really important. So the big question there is, what technologies do you wanna cover? So the US and Canada, currently accelerated capital cost allowance here applies to 19 specific clean energy and storage technologies. And that's great, it's a good start. We raised it two years ago, um, but it misses many important and emerging clean technologies. Um, it, it, it's a bit of a dated list and it really uses market ready technology. So it misses things like hydrogen as a new production source. It misses the kinds of technologies that reduce industry CO2 emissions, for example. And it misses pretty much all of the new emerging technologies that are moving through SDTC right now that are gonna be the net zero technologies of the future, um, simply because it's a slow regulatory list that moves at the speed of regulation. So if we want this incentive to capture the kinds of technologies that our clean tech companies are making, we need an expedited process to add new technologies to the list. The good news is there's a good example for that. We do that for the journalism tax credit right now. There's a way of bringing in new journalism companies quickly through an expedited approval process. We need something like that for this list too. So we can expand it beyond these existing 19 clean energy and storage technologies. So that's a quick and dirty run through of investment tax credits. Production tax credits, the big difference being that it's based on your actual performance rather than a technology investment. So you would get, let's say 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour of wind energy generated or $50 per ton of carbon capture stored through a CCS facility. It actually pays you for the amount you produce rather than your spending on technology. Um, different ways of providing the incentive and for different firms, one or the other may be slightly more uh, helpful. Again, the US budget 2021 both increases and extends production tax credits um, for certain specific clean energy technologies. So wind, geothermal, uh, landfill gas, and for CC, CCUS. Those are the main ones covered by their production tax credits. Um, and it also makes them refundable, although that's somewhat less valuable than it is for ITCs. We can talk about why if people want. Currently, the US spends about $5 billion a year on PTCs. With these increases, that's likely to move up to somewhere closer to nine to 10 billion. Most of that is for clean energy technologies. Less than 2% is actually going to CCS technologies right now. Obviously, people hope that will grow. Um, 
The difference between PTCs and ITCs, um, getting asked that a lot these days. So two main differences. One is a production tax credit is more useful for more mature technologies, technologies that are actually ready to produce. So you think about winds, power, solar power, they're actually ready for, for deployment and larger scale production. Getting paid per unit of output is, is a good value proposition. Investment tax credits are good both for earlier stage and for mature stage, because both of those stages involve capital investment. But if you're an earlier stage company, the ITC is more valuable because you're likely spending a lot of money on capital and technology, and you're not yet anywhere near full production yet. So the ITC covers more stages. It also can apply to a broader range of technologies. So production tax credits really only work where you're producing something that can be converted into a measurable unit of output, like a kilowatt hour of energy or a ton of CO2 sequestered. Whereas if you think about, depending who's on this call, a lot of the clean technologies that are made for industry CO2 reduction, new types of agriculture reductions, energy efficiency, you can't convert that into a specific unit the same way. And so a credit that applies to your capital spending is much more broadly applicable to clean technologies. Um, now, the beauty in the U.S. is they have both, and you have to pick one or the other. You can't double dip, which is really the best approach. So depending which type is better for your particular firm or technology, you can pick the type of, of, of um, production or investment tax credit, which really seems like the ideal outcome, frankly. Okay, so between those two, we're talking, you know, probably something in the range of $15 billion a year going forward in the US, which would be more than a billion dollars a year converted to, to Canada's economy. And then finally, just for comparison purposes, because Liberals election platform commitment was a corporate income tax cut for zero emission manufacturing. Let's just talk briefly about that. The CIT cut, by definition, mainly favors profitable firms. If you ain't profitable, a corporate tax cut's not that useful. Uh, although it also has some long-term help for your future valuation, even if you're not yet profitable, as my business colleague Mike Moffat reminds me, it still helps your long-term valuation if you're not profitable yet. So the goal of this um, zero emission manufacturing credit is both to attract new companies to invest here, to attract Elon Musk to build a, a Tesla factory here, um, to retain existing manufacturers in Canada and to create a long-term incentive for growing clean tech companies to stay in Canada as they become profitable. So it has a really good long-term directional signal. There are two really big design issues. One of them is how do you define a zero emission technology? If you define it as purely zero emission, not much qualifies. You can think of wind energy, solar energy, but even something like CCS, when it's embedded in a production facility, you know, the whole plant probably is not um, zero emission. It, it's just a component that offsets some of the emissions. So if you define zero emission as purely zero emission technology, not that much is going to qualify. Whereas you're talking about technologies that make substantial progress towards a zero emission future, um, more will qualify. The second issue is what kind of firms? If it only applies to pure play zero emission firms, then again, not that much qualifies. Wind energy manufacturers, solar manufacturers, um, pure play clean tech firms. But 
you've got lots of bigger integrated firms, GE, 3M, Siemens, um, even auto companies that are you know, making, zero, uh, making uh, EV batteries may have a zero emission manufacturing component of a larger firm. And so do you want the incentive to apply to the zero emission part of larger integrated firms? My view is yes. Uh, you want those firms growing in Canada, just like you want pure play firms. And particularly, a lot of those small pure play firms, eventually are going to get bought out. And they may get bought out by these bigger firms. And again, you want them to keep that part of their business in Canada. So I think it does make sense. And there are ways to do that. The production, the manufacturing tax credit in Canada, for example, um, just takes a, a prorated share of your investment that goes towards manufacturing and gives you a lower tax rate. So you can, there are ways in our tax system to carve out part of a larger integrated business. Overall, and this is a big generalization, corporate income tax cut will have less short-term impact probably than an ITC or PTC, just because there are not that many zero emission manufacturing firms that are profitable in Canada right now. Over time, that will grow though. Um, and the one thing it does do is it creates an incentive to manufacture in Canada. A PTC, or, or, or an ITC, you know, could encourage you to be buying technology made anywhere and, and applying it in Canada, whereas the CIT actually encourages you to make that technology in Canada. So in, in an ideal world, it combines nicely with the ITC and PTC. It creates kind of a home court advantage for making the stuff in Canada. And lastly, I'm putting this up just because I talked about keeping pace with the U.S. and these tax incentives are, are part of what's going on. And again, let me be really clear. I am not um, a tax law expert and I'm particularly not a U.S. tax law expert. And um, things are changing by the day in terms of U.S. infrastructure and, um, and budget processes. But this is, I hope, a relatively current snapshot of some of the things in the big U.S. Um, in infrastructure and the jobs plan bills moving through Congress right now, just to give you a sense of what's happening in the US and the massive scale up of effort going on across the border with our largest competitor. Um, they're looking at um, bringing in emission standards, CO2 emission standards across not just energy, but different major, major industry producers. Think of it kind of like a cap and trade system for industry. Um, I talked already about the tax credits, both production and incentive tax credits. Uh, they're making big investments, financial investments at all stages of development. So 35 billion in new funding for climate technology R&D, including um, a creation of ARPA-E and, and a new ARPA-C. Uh, and, and I can talk about what those are in questions for those of you who don't know ARPA, but ARPA-C is specifically focused on climate technologies. That's brand new. Um, and they're going to be throwing probably at least a billion a year at accelerating breakthrough low carbon technologies. Um, DOE loan guarantees is really targeted at those hard to finance scale up stage, that second stage. It's been very successful. Uh, it's been pushed down a little bit in the Trump years. It's coming back with Biden. Um, and the, the deployment stage is also getting new funding. So they're looking at this sustainability accelerator bank. Um, which could have up to $100 billion in funding over the next 10 years. Biden's bill from two days ago talks about an initial capitalization of 27, but the Senate bill talks about growing that to 100 over the next five to 10 years. Um, if you look at, as Mike has said, the $2 trillion infrastructure and spending, roughly about $500 billion of that is targeted at climate-related technologies, 
energy, transport, housing, R&D, um, different parts of, of um, infrastructure. There's a specific buy clean part of their procurement bill um, that targets specifically low carbon products and materials. They're putting 46 billion into that. Um, and the US has already had probably the most effective uh, procurement for innovation program in the world even before this. The SBIR program is a model. And this is one area, which I'm not gonna get into unless people want to in questions, but this is another area where Canada really has to pick up its, its pace a little bit is government procurement as a first buyer of promising Canadian clean technologies. Probably most of you know, if you're in the business, how difficult it is to make your first sales to governments here in Canada. Often you've got to go to the US or elsewhere and that's part of the problem of keeping companies here as they grow. The US has also got some big commitments, obviously net zero by 2050 matching Canada, 100% net zero electricity by 2035 and some of the budget bills and coming out of the Senate uh, have the same target for EV sales, 100% by 2035. See if they get all the way there on that one. Um, interestingly, it's unlikely the US will have a specific carbon price at the moment. Um, that's the crystal ball gazing. Uh, they may get there through these industry emission standards I talked about. If they've got trading and offset programs, then you'll get a pricing mechanism like a cap and trade system. But an explicit carbon tax, at least in the short term, seems unlikely. Um, it may come in in the next few years largely as a revenue raising mechanism, probably more than a behavior changing mechanism. But remember, 12 states already have their own carbon pricing systems and their, their economy is bigger than Canada's. So even if they aren't doing it federally, there's a whole lot of carbon pricing going on in the US. And of course, uh, border, border carbon adjustment, border carbon levy is an ongoing conversation. Um, the last carbon pricing law in the Obama era had an explicit carbon tariff, mainly targeted at Asia. Um, there's a lot of talk of having one now, no real landing on it yet, so we'll see where that goes. Unlikely to target Canada, but if the US did it, Canada may want to join up with the US as a way of preventing dumping of, of high carbon products into our market and helping our exporters um, get more of an advantage in, in exporting our products. So that's a really high level run through what's going on in the US, but it really reinforces that point that our largest competitor is raising its game in a big way. And if we wanna keep pace as a source for investment and jobs, we really need to match that. So Mike, I hope that helped. Over to you for any questions or comments or corrections. Yeah, that was very thorough, though I feel like we could really go into detail on any of these. So maybe a couple clarification questions. First, so if um, the investment tax credit, Stuart, is so efficient, so beneficial, much more than the accelerated capital cost allowance. Uh, why do we still need ACA uh, even if we extend it? I guess technically you wouldn't need both, right? There, um, capital cost allowance is on the tax form. You know, we're not going to get rid of capital cost allowance. It's a basic part of business accounting and taxation. Uh, and Canada's had mildly accelerated capital cost allowance going back more than 10 years already. So it, it as a long run instrument to encourage clean technology, it's good to keep it there. The US has it too, by the way. The US has both accelerated capital cost allowance and investment tax credit layered on top of it. So if we wanna keep pace with the US, um, doing both would, would let us match them. 
but they pull in pretty much the same direction. They're just different parts of your tax form uh, and, and they work together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, yeah. And um, so uh, focusing a little bit uh, on the investment tax credit. So you said that um, you could include other clean technologies um, by measuring progress uh, towards net zero. How do you do that? Well, without getting into the weeds too much. Um, so right now, the way we do it with ACCA is we've got 19 specific technologies, wind, solar, geothermal, they've now added storage. Um, so what they've done is they, they've picked kind of existing market ready technologies that can be specifically defined. Um, the problem is it's a regulation, right? And these regulations take a few years to get brought in and, and technology, of, as you, you guys all know, moves much faster than that. So what you would probably do is a similar to what, um, say the Netherlands does, for example. Netherlands has an accelerated capital cost allowance program that can bring in new technologies readily. They've got over a hundred on this and you would specify criteria. So the criteria would probably be um, climate, um, environmental performance, GHG performance. So, you know, does it improve GHG efficiency by let's say 30 to 50% better than existing incumbent technologies? Uh, does it have higher cost? Is it innovative? You probably would want to ask, is it a step towards net zero or is it actually a dead end, right? Is, is it a short-term technology that'll give you some benefit in the short run, but isn't actually going to get you to net zero? So you would, you'd want to have specific criteria and then you would probably want to have a process, um, maybe maybe not based out of um, uh, Canada Revenue Agency. NRCAN currently is the place that, that oversees the program for the accelerated capital cost allowance technologies. So let's say I'm a new company, I'm coming out of SDTC, I've got a great new technology for agriculture or reducing emissions from cement or steel or something. Uh, it's not on the list. I would apply to NRCAN they would have an expert advisory panels, which is exactly what they have for the, the journalism tax credit too. They've got an expert advisory panel. So you apply, that advisory panel weighs in and says, okay, based on these criteria, I think they meet it. Um, you get given approval to be added to the list. And you know, you could even, if, if, if you wanted to be cautious from a tax perspective, you could even make it provisional approval for a year or two until you formally get added to the regulation. Probably if there's any, um, um, Department of Finance people on the line, they're going to like hearing that because they, they ultimately want stuff rolled into the regulation. So you could even make it sort of an interim approval until you get rolled into the reg. But the key point is this, you want to have criteria and you want to have people come in quickly because if you're a new technology and a firm producing it, you can't wait two years to be able to do a regulation, right? You need, if you got a capital investment, that has to happen in months, not years. And if you can't bring these new technologies onto the list, in that kind of timely way, we're gonna lose them, right? They're gonna move elsewhere. Now you might say, you know, we've got the net zero accelerator fund, we've got BDC and EDC, and it's true. There are ways for these firms to go and, and attract um, some direct capital investment. Those take a long time and the bigger the money, the longer the wait as it should be. The benefit of the tax credit is you don't have to go through a rigorous long-term approval process through a BDC or an SDTC or an EDC or a net zero accelerator fund. By definition, you know, those are making a small number of very big investments. And so they've got to take, they've got to have a rigorous long process. A tax credit doesn't need that. 
if you fit within those one of those types of technologies, you can immediately just get that credit. And because it's now refundable, if we do what the US does and make it refundable, you can monetize that very quickly, mm-hmm. and take that to the bank. And that really helps you attract other investors, knowing you've got you know, that 30% of your capital coming back already uh, is going to help bring in other investors. So there are models for doing it. And essentially, you know, to make it short and dirty, take the model we use for journalism and apply it to clean technology. Right. Okay. Maybe I'll take a question uh, from the audience. Um, there were actually two similar ones regarding is there a way to tie incentives under the investment tax credit or the production tax credit to deployment of or production from Canadian innovation without violating uh, WTO rules, <laughs> World uh, Trade Organization rules? Similarly, would a bi-Canada or Canadian type approach to clean tech solutions in Canada work from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're limited by, by trade rules on that. And that's a longer, a longer webinar to get into all the intricacies of trade rules and how the U.S. often skates around those trade rules. So obviously, from a, from a domestic perspective, having a, a Canadian preference for procurement uh, and for tax incentives would be beneficial. Having our tax incentives support large investment in technologies made elsewhere minimizes the benefit to Canada. Can you design the tax incentives to do that? Well, as I said, one of the benefits of the zero emission manufacturing credit is it's actually tied to your production in Canada. And I think that they were probably deliberate in not saying we're giving this credit to firms whose overall operations are zero emission, but to actually making zero tech emission technologies here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the zero emission corporate income tax credit. It doesn't apply to that much yet, uh, unless you expand the definition of zero emission technology to include ones that make a significant contribution towards zero emission. If you did that, probably a little bit more would qualify now. But again, you still have to, for the corporate tax cut to work, you have to be profitable. You can't really extend a corporate tax cut to pre-profitable firms. So I would bring that in. The investment tax credit, by making it refundable, it is going to apply more and more to Canadian technologies for this reason. Um, you know, if you're, um, you know, a large firm, let's say you're a, you know, a pulp and paper company or a manufacturing firm and you're buying a new energy efficiency or emission reduction technology, you can buy stuff made anywhere and, and get the tax credit. And that's good. We, we, the goal there is emission reduction and adoption. But if you're a pre-profit firm, you're an unprofitable firm operating in Canada, spending a lot of money on technology, chances are you're a Canadian clean tech firm, right? Going through demonstration and scale up, there's not a whole long list of unprofitable firms sitting here in Canada, spending a lot of money on clean technology. Well, there are right now, I guess, coming out of the downturn, there's going to be, in the short run, there's going to be a lot of unprofitable firms. But in a systemic ongoing way, there are not a lot of unprofitable firms spending big money on clean tech investment. So making them refundable is really important because the refundable part is going to end up applying more to Canadian manufacturers. Those are the ones that are going to be using the refundable part, much like the shred tax credit right? Shred is essentially a refundable credit. It just doesn't apply to capital spending. So Mm -hmm. making these tax credits refundable, you can think of it this way. It's a little bit like extending a shred tax credit 
to clean tech capital investment. It has that same kind of value for small firms. So it will help Canadian firms more the refundable part. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. And I mean, uh, speaking of threat, that has been incredible, um, incredibly um, important for clean tech companies to kind of do R&D and has helped a lot. You were talking about the uh, US ARPA-E, which the Advanced Research Project Agency Energy, which as far as I understand, also helps R&D and strategically invests in clean tech companies that will be relevant in the future, but are not ready now. Can you explain that a little bit further and would that be helpful in Canada? And if so, how could we do that? Yeah, no, good question. And I mean, I'd focused on the the big ones the U.S. are using that are kind of shovel ready and you could conceivably get into a budget in the next two weeks, ITCs and PTCs. So ARPA-E, um, for those who don't know it, and I'm you know, I'm not a deep expert, I've written a paper on it, but uh, lots of people know more than I do. The U.S. big innovation success story or technology story is military procurement. I mean, success in one way, right? They've, they've driven more innovation than probably any other country in the world through military procurement. And the, the program's called DARPA. A while ago, back in the Obama days, they tried to replicate that model for clean energy. So they created what was called ARPA-E, Advanced Research and Procurement Agency for Energy. And what ARPA-E has always done is it tries to support breakthrough technology by using a life cycle systems approach. So they, they reverse engineer. They start by saying, what are the breakthrough technologies that we need to achieve our, let, let, in this case, um, a net zero economy by 2050. It, it's a mission-driven approach to technology innovation. So they start with the end goal. What do we need? What kind of breakthrough technologies do we need? And then it reverse engineers to look at where those are now, whether they're R&D stage, demonstration stage, early scale up. And then it creates this arm's length agency that not only has smart bureaucrats in it, it brings in lots of experts from the private sector, both university profs, um, industry R&D experts, uh, as well as managers from the private sector and the investment world. And it brings them together into this really unique mix of public and private experts. That they're kind of like a strike team or a SWAT team to drive breakthrough innovation. And they try and figure out where in the production chain from where we are now to the breakthrough point we need to be, they need to remove barriers and accelerate progress. So it could be targeted tax incentives, procurement, throwing money at demonstration, helping pull a DOE loan guarantee in. Um, They look at the various range of tools that are there in the toolkit and try and get both public and private actors working together to take these breakthrough innovations and move them along. We've talked about doing something something ARPA-like. I think NRCAN actually proposed it back in budget 2017. Uh, We didn't do it because it involves a new agency that's actually quite new and quite unique. Um, Interestingly, the Business Council of Canada has just proposed the creation of something like ARPA-E here in Canada. So it seems to be getting mainstream support. I think it would be a fabulous idea, especially as the US is now scaling up funding for ARPA and creating what they're calling ARPA-C. So ARPA-E is around clean energy technologies. That's the E part. ARPA-C is about a whole host of climate technologies. So think about decarbonizing industrial emissions, waste, agriculture, um, vehicles. Um, Yeah, if we want to keep pace with the US, 
having something like that in Canada that builds on existing institutions and weaves them together would be hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're almost at the end of the session, but I think there's two more points I'd like to touch on. And I also see that um, the uh, participants are asking similar questions. So one is flow through shares. Is that an option? How does it compare? And the other question I would like to touch on as well is, what are your thoughts toward on export tax credits or really any mechanisms to support the international business development activities of Canadian clean tech companies? I'll start with the export one before getting into flow through. Um, so, I mean, obviously the, the export part is critical as a small export dependent nation. Last time I checked, Mike, I think more than 50% more than fifty of our clean tech production that goes for export. Is that still true? Sounds right, yeah. Okay, so it's obviously really important. Um, there's a whole bunch of things we need to be doing, you know, Canada's um, missions, the trade missions, but two of the things that could be particularly helpful, one I talked about, which is a border carbon adjustment, which can both, well, the main thing we'll do, we'll, we'll protect our domestic market by preventing lower cost products on countries that don't have the same rigorous climate standards. But the thing that might help most is these thing called ITMOs in the Paris Accord. And if you don't know ITMOs, it's, um, it's basically an acronym for carbon credits, but they're negotiated typically at a nation to nation level, but they could be project by project as well. The Paris Agreement creates the high level architecture to build the rules. It's the one part of the Paris Agreement where the specific rules haven't been agreed on yet. Um, didn't, they didn't break through on it two years ago. Last year's climate summit got canceled because of COVID. So the hope is this year they'll create the rules for ITMO. And to kind of cut to the chase, the end game for us would be if you're selling a clean technology, particularly to a developing country, part of the compensation package could be getting some of the, the carbon credits back. So let's say the government of Canada can help finance the project and in exchange get 50% of the carbon credits from a clean technology to help meet our Paris target. It, it can be a, a non-monetary form of compensation whereby government can come in as part of an investment package with clean tech companies and support export. So getting the rules for ITMOs nailed down in the climate summit this year will be really important for clean tech export. What was the other one? Flow through shares. Okay. So you see in here that middle line, CRC, flow through shares. Um, we actually have a version of flow through shares already. So in addition to accelerated capital cost allowance, we have this related credit, the Canadian Resource Conservation Expense Credit, I believe CRCE. And it's, it, it's the, the Siamese twin of the ACCA. So the, the technologies, if you're, if you're investing, say, in wind or solar, the capital costs of that investment are eligible for ACCA, but there's a whole bunch of non-capital expenses, you know, site prep, um, marketing, research that, that wouldn't, be qualified, wouldn't qualify for ACCA, and those are eligible for flow-through shares. I won't do a whole flow through shares seminar here because that'd take a long time. But basically the idea of a flow through share is if you're a company making an investment and they've been used for a long time for mining, that's where they've, they've grown from in Canada. So they're used for mining exploration firms that tend to have high capital expenses, but not profits yet. Their profits are in the future. So as a way of attracting investment, you can invest 
in a mining exploration company and the money that they spend on expenses can flow through, the losses from that can flow through to the holder of these flow through shares. So I'm a small mining company. I don't have profits to offset those losses against. Those losses can flow through to the holder of the flow through share. And in exchange, that flow through shareholder will pay me a premium price to invest in my company. It'll create a, a share premium for your company. So it's a win-win for both. There's a mixed bag of research on flow through shares. I can tell you, it's probably not a great secret that the Department of Finance doesn't like them very much. There's a sense that there's, there's a whole lot of transaction costs involved because you've got to have brokers and investors and there's rules about how soon after the investment it can be claimed as a credit. So it tends to jam a lot of spending into a short space. And I think in the US anyway, the thinking is, it seems to be something like this, that the end goal of a flow through share is to put money back in the pocket of an investor, right? I'm investing in a promising clean tech company. I wanna give money in my pocket. Well, there's another way of doing that, which I didn't talk about, but it's these investor tax credits, which is different from an investment tax credit. So an investor tax credit is if I make an investment in a qualifying company, I get 30% of that investment back. Um, and it's, it's based, investment tax credit is based on the company spending on capital and investor tax credit is based on an equity investor investing in a company. So six provinces have them. BC's is probably the oldest and best known, but the Maritimes have them, Manitoba has them. And so if your end goal is to create an incentive for investing in clean tech companies, um, you, you can do that in a really clean way through an investor tax credit. Now, I don't mean before all the flow through shares, people get angry at me and send me nasty emails. I'm not against flow through shares. I think there's, there's lots of potential for them. I think we need to do a bunch of research if you wanna get finance to approve them as to how to make them targeted and efficient and to get rid of some of the baggage that's been associated with flow through shares in the mining sector as we trans translate it through to clean tech. So it's, it's a worthwhile idea. I don't think it's ready for prime time yet in terms of this budget, but it's worth some, some work on and try to getting it calibrated and targeted for clean tech, maybe for uh, the next budget. Yeah, thanks Stuart. Um, I think we need to slowly wrap up. I mean, I my takeaway here is that we really need a mix of different incentives, not only tax incentives, possibly also mechanism for domestic procurement, research and development, exports, all of it. So if you were to decide what to do <laughs> now and next, what would you do? <laughs> if I were the boss, huh? Um, so I guess, the one big thing we need to do, not just for tax credits, but for all of these instruments, is we need to have strategic priorities. Um, the, 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 we had this sustainable finance panel a couple of years ago, chaired by Tiff Macklem, who now has another job as governor of the Bank of Canada. But the number one recommendation of that finance panel was to build what they called clean competitiveness roadmaps, sector by sector. And it really is looking at each of our sectors and figuring out as the world shifts to a net zero future, where's Canada likely to be competitive? You know, if you figure we're what, 2% of global GDP. So if we do great, 
you know, we might be a player in making say 5% of the technologies that a low carbon global economy will use. What is that 5%? Because that's where we should be putting our chips, right? It's not going to be, you know, sugarcane ethanol, right? We know that. It's probably not going to be concentrated solar power. Desert countries are going to probably beat us out on that. Um, so, you know, let's, let's figure out which things we're a little bit late to the party on or they're not in our wheelhouse. But let's figure out what is in our wheelhouse. And I think the key to, for example, where do we spend money from the net zero accelerator? Where do we focus our tax incentives? Where do we focus strategic procurement? has to be based on um, these roadmaps for each of these sectors and the net zero transition. Where's our advantage in Canada? Where's our priority? And so doing those roadmaps is really, really important. We're starting to do it on hydrogen, but still we're just tinkering. We haven't really done the hard work of not just figuring out everything we might conceivably do, but when push comes to shove, you know, what are the places that we're going to outcompete Germany, Japan, the US, China, right? That's really the acid test. And there are going to be some, you know, like, for example, the big investment in Lysis. Uh, we're, we're now the world's first place making zero emission aluminum. That's pretty cool. And they've done their best to lock up the IP and some of the know-how around that. You know, we're not going to be, we're not going to win that battle for every single type of technology, but where are the places that we're going to be able to have these breakthroughs? And those are the places we need to target our energy and not do the typical Canadian thing of spreading peanut butter thinly over everything, but really make some bets. And some of those bets won't succeed, but at least, you know, we'll have a smart theory like any investor. So I would say doing these clean competitiveness roadmaps for sectors that bring together smart investors disruptive innovators and some of the more ambitious large incumbent companies to map out these roadmaps is really important as a way of informing all of these policy tools. Great last words, uh, Stuart. Yeah, sounds really like uh, we need new strategy tables uh, to uh, yeah, craft these roadmaps. And uh, yeah, um, to everyone whose questions were not answered, uh, I think I can say with a lot of confidence that it won't be the last panel with Stuart here and on that topic because it is vast and it is important. And um, yeah, with that, thank you very much, Stuart. Thanks thank for inviting me. Time. And thanks to my research team and Jonas for doing all the hard work to, to make this happen. For more podcasts, subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or visit us at www.actia.ca.